0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Oh, good morning, church. I'm Andrew. I'm just going to jump straight into whatever we're going to do today. Um just start with a word of prayer. Our oh, Father of glory, I pray that you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you will open our eyes, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might know you, we might see you. Open our ears, soften and tenderize our hearts. We say we want to grow in the knowledge of your Son. We want to look at His beauty, of Him glorified in whatever form that um, you choose to reveal him. And we say, Holy Spirit, we invite your ministry, or we'll do what you love to do, to come and take Jesus and reveal it to your church that will cause us to burn with love for him. Yeah, I pray that you anoint my lips, you anoint the hearts and the minds of the hearers, that um, your message will be communicated clearly. We ask all this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, There's no live audience to laugh at my jokes today. So I'm just going to go straight in. It's probably going to be quite serious, but hopefully it'll be focused. Um, Just to start with the context, I think we live in possibly the most literate generation in history. We have more access to information than ever. But for most of history, actually, people did not have free personal access to the entire Word of God. Most people had, like, a few scrolls or selected books, and you had to go to the temple or go to the synagogue to hear the word of the Lord. Today, the church, for most parts, most regions in the world, we can access multiple translations, concordances, commentaries, in the palm of our hand, on our smartphones. I can't help but think that um, it's a time of abundant harvest, a bit like the story um, of Joseph, where he instructed Egypt in the seven years of harvest to store up grain. And interestingly, he had the understanding to do that because he knew that a period of famine, seven years, was looming and coming for Egypt. In Amos 8.11, this shepherd, he prophesies this and he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will send a famine to the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. I'm grappling with this verse and asking myself two questions today. The first is, what have we done with the time of harvest that we're in? And my prayer for the church is that we will be found as faithful stewards of the resources that the Lord has given to us. If the Lord is flooding the earth and our generation, particular parts of the church with access to his word, what have we done with this period? Or have we devalued what has been given to us because we think it's free and we take for granted that it will be freely available forever? Now the second question is this, that in the midst of access to all this information, do we actually hear the word of the Lord? Um, I say this with some trepidation because it's possible to intellectually comprehend the stories and the themes in the Bible but not actually have the word of God apprehend us. And I want to be a person who hungers for the word of the Lord, even in the times of comfort, even in the times of harvest. So it's my prayer that um, our generation will be found faithful with what we have been given, this access to the word of God, that we will actually store up understanding of God to produce a witness to the world. And this is the context in which I'm sharing today, and I think the church is embarking on this whole season of engaging with Scripture, building ourselves up in biblical literacy. Now, I just want to make one statement. I think it's the cornerstone, um, which frames our understanding of how we study Scripture, and it's this. The chief purpose of studying Scriptures is to discover Jesus. I'm just going to say it again. The chief purpose of studying Scripture is to discover Jesus. And if you forget everything else, this is what you need to go, uh, take home. A couple of weeks ago, Janice spoke on Luke 24. Um, This is a context where Jesus' body is missing and the apostles are kind of confused, disillusioned. And they're on the verge of disbanding. They're wondering whether their movement has kind of come to an end. And they're running away, they're grappling with this idea. They have almost a crisis of faith, if you would. How can the one who was prophesied to redeem Israel, how can he be crucified? And in the midst of this, we have this Luke 24 account where Jesus actually appears to his disciples, two of them, and he gives them what I believe is probably the most invigorating Bible study in all of history. And in Jesus' own words, he says, Oh, you foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer all these things to enter into his glory? And catch this, this his beginning with Moses, which is the Torah, the first five books of scriptures, and all of the prophets. In other words, all of the scripture, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I believe that the discovery of Jesus in the scripture caused their hearts to burn with love. So get this in verse 32, after he goes on this um, tour of the Bible, if you would, to reveal himself in all scriptures, the disciples looked at each other and asked themselves this question, did not our hearts burn within us or he talked to us on the road or he opened to us the scriptures? And I love verse 33 when it says, at that same hour they rose and returned to Jerusalem. And they got a hold of the other 11 disciples who were probably kind of confused and declared to them that the Lord had risen. Well, I believe that Scripture is designed for us to burn with love for Him. Many people think of Scripture as a book that explains the love of God for us. And that's absolutely right. But the Bible is also His self-revelation that is engineered, if you would, to cause His church to fall in love with Him. As we go through the scripture and discover who he is, it's designed for us to fall in love with him. And the same way that these revelations of Jesus in scripture changed the course of their journey. Literally, they were heading to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem, and they turned back. They went back to Jerusalem, found the other disciples, and told them something that they discovered. I believe that some of us are actually headed on the road to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem. And we will find that the journeys of our lives will be altered as we encounter Jesus in Scripture. So that's kind of a context setter. We are called to engage with all of Scripture. Now today, I want to focus specifically on one topic, and that's the topic of the end times, and specifically end times Scriptures. Now some of us in our community have... uh, committed to engage with this topic, Um, some earlier than others up to a a couple years ago, some more recently, a couple months ago. Uh, Jason and John Wong, um, as well as the Burning Hearts team, recently hosted a conversation um, of leaders of churches and different houses of prayer across all of Asia. And um, they had a conversation with Mike Bickle, Daniel Lim, and Samuel Whitfield, all from IHOP. And they were talking about this end-time scripture and what it means for the church today. Well, I believe that the Lord is actually bringing renewed emphasis for His church all across the world to understand specifically what He plans to do in the generation where the Lord returns. Well, the most common misconception about the end times is this, that it's a study of dates, events, conspiracy theories, and people get really excited when the moon turns red. Um, I think that this belief has cost us heavily because it has resulted in many people in the church being disengaged or disinterested in the topic. Well, kind of what what, what I was saying at the start, right? If the goal of all of scripture is to discover Jesus, surely the end of the study of end times has to be a discovery of who Jesus is. The goal of end times is to discover a revelation of who Jesus is in the midst of all these descriptions. So I'm interested in Astrology which is the study of the end times, because I'm interested in Jesus. I'm interested in everything that he has to say and all that he is. I love the parts of the scriptures which describe Jesus not about the end times, but I also love the parts where it's about the end times, and I want all of it, especially or even the things that I don't really understand. It's in the mysteries of these things that we find it hard to grapple with, that there are revelations or hidden treasures of the beauty of Christ, which is our inheritance. So today I'm just going to talk about three reasons why the study of the end times is important. If you're already swimming in this and studying the end times for yourself, probably I'm singing to the choir, but um, here goes. The first one, it's no surprise, is study the end times reveals Jesus. Now Jesus is revealed in all of scripture. The past stories leading up to the incarnation of Jesus serve to build an anticipation and a hope for Messiah. The life and the death of Jesus, I think is the pivotal and most important revelation of God. But the end time scriptures, I believe, review Jesus in all of His glory and gives us a hope of the ultimate restoration of all things beyond our wildest imaginations. And if you would, you have the, the climax. I, I think we have two climaxes, in fact. The first, the incarnation, the life, the death, the ministry of Jesus, and the second, when history turns. History is punctuated by these two climaxes called the first and second coming of Jesus. Well, Mike Bickle from IHOP has identified at least 150, probably about 160 plus chapters where he believes that the primary subject of these scriptures is to describe the generation which Jesus returns. Well, I don't have time to go into this, obviously, but um, a lot of us have identified Matthew 24 and 25 as the backbone of this. If you would, it's the spine, which you can start with to understand how a lot of these scriptures describe it. And you can then go to the writings of Paul, Revelations, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Malachi. I don't know if this surprises some people that all of these books, actually pretty much I listed the whole Bible, um, has and contains chapters which describes the end time revelation when Jesus returns. It's not just revelation. And I think that if we begin to grasp what these chapters say, a grand narrative begins to emerge. And I think that storyline will cause our hearts to burn and give the church a focus in being intentional and in living for God in this time. So just to underscore that point, let's quickly look at Philippians 2. I think this is a, um, one of the glorious descriptions that Paul has of the person of Jesus, and he's describing Jesus and exhorting the church, hey, be like this guy. He says, he's in very nature God, but he did not consider equality of God something to be grasped or something to be made used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant in human likeness, found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, I'm just going to stop here and not finish that um, passage. Just make a statement here that I think history and the world has now seen the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the ascension. If you would, we have tracked through from verse 6 all the way down to where we just stopped, um, where he was humbled. He was killed and he was ascended up to heaven. Jesus is now, Scripture tells us, glorified in the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father. But it's during the end times that he receives the kingdom and the worship that is due, which finishes what Paul is writing here, that at the name of Jesus every knee bows, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when Jesus came the first time, he was rejected by the Jewish rulers who delivered him up to the Romans to be crucified. But scripture tells us that he's coming back to a Jerusalem who would embrace him. If you're interested, look up Matthew 23, verse 39. Jesus came meek and lowly, riding on a donkey as he entered into the city of Jerusalem. He fulfilled the Zechariah 9, 9 prophecy, But in the end times, John in Revelation describes that he's coming back as a king on a white horse. If you look at Revelation 19, it says, He saw heaven standing open, and before him was a white horse. The rider of that horse is called Faithful and True. Now listen to the descriptions of this rider. With justice he judges, and he wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head of many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Armies of heavens are following him. They're riding horses. They're dressed in fine white clean linen. Coming out of this rider's mouth is a sharp sword, which he uses to strike down the nations. And John then quotes Isaiah, he ruled them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Once again, a quote from Isaiah. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, church, I think we need to grasp this portrait of Jesus. I love the, the portrait of Jesus where he humbled himself to die on the cross. I think it's one of the foremost revelations of who Jesus is. But I think that humility becomes even more stunning when we see Him in His glory, that if the eternal God who looks like that in His glory, if that was His original state, if you would, He humbled Himself to that extent, I think it's even more stunning. And I think that it's this revelation of Jesus that has to captivate our thoughts and our imaginations. Put it another way, my own prayer is this, when He comes back, I want to recognize Him. And I want to immerse myself in the descriptions of who he is when he comes back. So, first point, right? The study of end times reveals Jesus. Specifically, it reveals another dimension of his majesty. Second reason. The study of the end times prepares us for the end times. Well, yeah, duh, Andrew. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> the story of past events instruct us of the nature of who God is, how he leads history, how he relates to people. And I think the more we grasp these stories, actually, the more we realize that they're echoing into the future. Many of us read Noah, Joseph, the Exodus narrative, stories about the Babylonian siege, the accounts of Daniel. and. Records in the book of Acts and we think these are past stories. Would it surprise us that actually in the generation where the Lord returns, we see actually a lot of these narratives start to play out. In other words, we need to grasp these past stories to prepare ourselves for the future. Well, let's look at Matthew 24 and this is Jesus' sermon on Mount of Olives. And this is his extended exposition. Um, Many of us believe that this is his final sermon, if you would, before he goes to the cross. And he's standing on the Mount of Olives, where you can see the city of Jerusalem. And he gives um, his disciples one of the most extended sermons on the end times. Um, And he says this, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in his name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray you hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed because this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Well, not really like very cheery stuff, at first glance, well, I think we need to grasp what the Bible is saying here. If you look at the passage, essentially, I think that we need to be prepared so that when deception abounds, we're not deceived. When the disasters, wars, shakings come, we are not fearful or alarmed. So that when persecution increases, they're delivering us us up to tribulation, putting us to death, that we can remain firm and not compromise. That when lawlessness increases, immorality, selfishness abounds, that the church will remain in love and an unyielding purity. And that we can be like the one that Jesus describes here, be the one who endures to the end, faithful in our assignment to preach the gospel and believe Him to the end I think that we need to grasp this like it's if this entire passage of Matthew 24 is like oh what's this you know completely new no one ever told me this would happen then I wonder whether we prepared Or well, many of us Avoid these passages because you read it and it's like oh, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? You read it and like you're like kind of fearful because of all this bad stuff, false cries, wars, famine, earthquakes, persecution, lawlessness. Nobody wants to talk about it. We have enough problems today already. But I want us to grasp this. In the middle of Matthew 24, here, Jesus describes all of these things and he throws in the final line. And he says this, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the entire world. My heart is just burning thinking about what kind of church would release a global witness to all the nations in the midst of these pressures. And I think that sometimes we let that statement slip past us, not realizing the kind of message that Jesus is emphasizing. I believe that God is actually setting a stage for His church, a mature bride in the generation where He returns, to release a witness that's uncompromising and compelling. As some people would say it's the best of times and the worst of times. So I urge us all to study these passages starting with Matthew 24 25 and ask ourselves this question, honestly, what do you think is coming? Now you might not come to the same conclusions, you know, some people debate, you know, some of these things have been fulfilled to some degree but ask ourselves these questions what do you think it's coming and how can we be prepared for this now if our understanding of the gospel is one where god primarily Mm -hmm. blesses us grants us prosperity and peace perpetually i wonder whether we're prepared for the end times well i think god's story is much more glorious than one of comfort and ease he's forming a people whom he calls the bride of Christ, who will choose to marry his son even when it costs them everything. The bride at the the end of the age is not marrying Jesus because he's rich or because he's powerful or because it benefits her. Although all these things are true, she's marrying the one whom she loves even unto death because he loved her unto death. And God is writing this love story, and it's going to climax in the end times. Um, And I think we shortchange ourselves by saying, hey, look, history is going to be one of ever-increasing prosperity and abundance and blessing and peace, right? If the scripture doesn't say so. Now, the third point, the third reason why we have to engage with the end times is that I believe that the study of the end times actually produces a yearning and a mature bride. Jesus gave us all these end time prophecies so that when the trouble comes, our response is faith. Now, I'm asking this question. When crisis hits, what's our first response? Many of us look to history. We learn, you know, what are the lessons learned since the last outbreak? enter into emergency mode, we marshal resources, stand united, plan for contingencies. That's not wrong. But what is the response that God is looking for? When the world system is shaken and when many of the systems that we have put our faith in, whether it's capitalism, human governance, they fall short of what they promised to deliver, what is the church's response? Well, I believe that the more we engage with scripture, the more we start to anchor our ultimate hope on the return of Jesus, and not a human solution to this crisis. Which means that the more the suffering increases, the more the tribulation and injustice increases, actually will produce a hard response in his church to cry out for his return. While Jason has spoken about this multiple times previously, and he's spoken about this Luke 18 parable of the persistent widow. And it's interesting because the, Jesus told the parable to remind his disciples not to lose heart in the place of intercession. Well, it's actually the context of her crying out for justice. In other words, when she looks at the injustice and the evil, she cries out to the judge of all the earth and says, Give me justice. And it's actually the context of day and night. He says this. Day and night, pray for the Lord and the judge of all the earth to do right. It's a day and night prayer on his return. I think it's really odd that the church be comfortable in the world and not looking forward to the return of her bridegroom. So let's take an analogy. You have a bride whose wedding is postponed indefinitely for some reason, maybe COVID, right? Some of you know what that, that's like. Right, um, and because this wedding has been postponed, she will take her mind off the wedding. You know, go back to life as usual. Stop like, you know, looking at wedding dresses every day. But imagine the directive changes. Who, you know, um, weddings are allowed again, solemnizations and uh, banquets are allowed again. Suddenly the the, the mode shifts. She's like, oh, okay, Mine her mind and her affections are engaged again to prepare for this wedding something that she's kind of put on the back burner for a while previously again the bride will start to picture herself in the gown walking down the aisle a bridegroom waiting for her she's starting to get ready again well if you read Matthew 24 go on to Matthew 25 Matthew 25 is all about this it's all about being ready it's all about preparing yourself looking forward to it going for I don't know, bridal boot camps to get in shape you know Making sure that your wedding, you can fit in your wedding gown, that it's spotless, you know. Um, the Bible tells us of that Jesus would come back to a bride who is in unison with the Spirit. Um, the closing of Revelation says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Finally, the bride comes into full unity with the Holy Spirit, yearning for the return of Jesus on the earth. I think the Lord. going to energize his church to engage with what the scripture says about the end times that will cause this mindset shift like the bride in my earlier analogy like the wedding is coming and i need to prepare myself for it it's not a long way off that i'm unconcerned about it and suddenly we become a bride that's filled with longing a bride recognizes that jesus is coming back again soon and he's coming back again suddenly well, I just want to make this one point, which I think is, is kind of an important other dimension, that she's not just a yearning bride, right, but she's a mature one. Some people who have gone and engaged with end times have then led to unhealthy and unhelpful practices, like hiding in a bunker, stockpiling luncheon meat and toilet rolls, you know, waiting for the return of Jesus. But I just make a suggestion that that's not a mature bride. For well, the church in the final generation is not going to be one that's hiding, waiting for Jesus' return. Remember in Matthew 24, Jesus said this, In the midst of the great tribulation, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the entire world as a testimony to the nation. Now, who's going to do this? It has to be the bride. The bride is not passive. The gospel of the kingdom is not just a message. The proclamation of this gospel is not just words, it's also indeed. I think that the church is going to release the greatest mercy response to the greatest crisis in history. It's going to look like signs, wonders and miracles, but it's also going to look like a church who will share bread when there's famine, share water when there's a drought, open our homes to the homeless, the refugees, the orphans when people are displaced. It's a church would love when we're hated and a church would preach the gospel of eternal life unto death i think the lord is gonna switch off the lights so that the church can shine and i'm dreaming for this church i'm reading these scriptures and starting to not just yearn for the return of jesus but yearn for his mature bride to come into her place and i think Jesus is longing for that it says that it is his inheritance and it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross he was picturing this now just to wrap up I'm just going to quickly address one reason why many of us neglect the end times and I think kind of applicable to this whole journey that we're entering in about um, growing in biblical literacy um, One of the main reasons why people neglect the end times is because we think it's unknowable. Like, m- maybe many of you have tried. You know, you open the scripture, you read this, and it's like, I have no idea what this is about. And we have this experience that it's an impenetrable mystery. You know, there's like allegories, there's ciphers, there's all these figures, and we've also seen many people falsely predict dates and events. Um, Specifically, there's a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Imagine that wasn't really a bestseller in 1989. Um, And so then we read these things and it's like, uh, you know, um, not sure it's knowable. And we think that it's futile. Well, I just want to make a statement that I think it's futile to try to discover what the Lord has chosen not to reveal, right? And in Matthew 24, Jesus does say this. He says, Concerning the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It goes on in verse 44, to says, and he actually says this, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, this is the whole point of Matthew 24 and 25. And Jesus, if you would, application to his Sermon on the End Times, which is that you must be ready, you must be on guard, because he's coming at, both in a time and in a way that will surprise us. So, God has chosen not to reveal some things. But God is faithful to reveal Jesus. Remember, this is the point of all of scripture. The Revelation, the book of Revelation, before it launches into this whole, like, ooh, allegories and everything, and like amazing visions, the first thing he starts off and he says this the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show the servants the things that must soon take place. The focal point, the emphasis, is not what will take place, it's the revelation of Jesus through that. Revelation is The book of Revelation is primarily not about revealing what happens later on. It's about revealing Jesus. Um, It's the Holy Spirit's assignment and He loves to take the scripture to reveal Jesus to the church. It's like one of the things He loves to do the most. And we have to trust God that He's faithful to reveal Himself when we seek Him. See, if I'm kind of going to paraphrase Paul a bit. See, if we understood all the mysteries and we didn't end up falling in love with him, I fear we've missed the point. There are many perplexing things about scripture. Now you're going to indulge me for a few seconds. For example, it's the plague of Zechariah 14, a nuclear bomb. What does 666 mean? Is it actually 616? How do 1,260 days and the 42 months and times, time and half time reconcile with 1,290 days? Daniel 12. Is Domitian the 8th king in Revelation 17? Where's the Armageddon? Clue, it's not the plain of Megiddo. First Thessalonians 4 talks about a trumpet call. Is it the same event as Matthew 24 trumpet call? Is Jesus coming back on the first day of the 7th month? As many people think he is. Where is he coming back? He's coming back on Mount Sinai. Where is Mount Sinai even? Well, sorry if I lost you. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter so much um, if you don't figure out all of these things. Well, I love the details as you probably can surmise. I love the debates. You know, I love the parallels. But these are not the main point. And sometimes when we make the study of the end times, like the point to answer all these questions, and we become quite dogmatic about it. I suspect it's because we love being right more than we love being united. And we can't lose the the vision of the forest for the trees. It's as if we are looking at this picture and we are debating, like, hmm, you know, no, the artist is using this thickness of the brush and this particular date of the paint to paint this picture, or counting the number of hues in the painting. And we're debating all of these things, is this the point of appreciating the picture? Well, no, the point of a picture is to reveal a larger message, which is the person of Jesus. And I think while we might not be able to agree on some of these details, we can step back as a church, look at the grand narrative, and agree on the beauty of Jesus and its applications for the church. Just to take us through quickly, if we grasp the message, we realize that the main messages of the end times is this. Jesus is in control. He initiates the end times in Revelations. He's the one who opens the seals on the scroll. The beast or the devil is given a period to do everything that's in his heart and for man to freely choose. God releases judgments. These judgments are both just, but they're also redemptive. There's a period of great trouble, but there's also a glorious period of miracles and revival and salvations. And in the midst of all of this, get this, the gospel of the kingdom is preached to all the nations. By who? By a church that loves Him more than their own lives, loves Him unto death. And all of the nations of the world will have a witness of who God is so that they can choose. And it's in this context, in His mercy, where the nations are warned and have an adequate witness that he brings his final judgment, because you can choose. When he comes, he comes back to defeat sin, to defeat sickness, and to put an end to death once and for all. In his mercy and in his wisdom, out of the tribulation, Jesus forms a people whom he collectively refers to as his bride that's compatible with him. Not just one that he loves, but one that loves him with the same degree and maturity. And it's a love story. Jesus and His bride dwells forever. And the so often repeated line in all of Scripture, the common thread, He will be their God and they will be His people. As we grasp these themes, we learn and we relearn them, then I think we've grasped the point. Oh, let's just make a second point here. I haven't ended yet. Well, many of us think that um, the end time scriptures are still kind of confusing. You're like, oh yes, you know, I get the point. I want to discover Jesus in it, but it's kind of confusing. I read it and I still don't get it, right? And I think you know, one of the reasons is because we're more familiar with a fairly linear way of thinking, like of chronology, like A leads to B leads to C, and syllogism. Well, biblical prophecy often doesn't work like that. So if you actually read all of the passages and you try to piece together a timeline, sometimes you could find it's very challenging because biblical prophecy works more like a mosaic or, in 21st century terms, like a jigsaw puzzle. right? Oftentimes we cannot see the big picture even if you have all the pieces. You open up the jigsaw puzzle, you look at all the pieces, you have everything there. right? The Bible contains all the pieces that you need. But you look at it and you're like, I have no idea what this is, right? You don't know how to piece things together. But when someone pieces all the pieces together and forms a picture, it becomes so obvious. You're like, ah, it was there all along. It's like, of course this piece is next to this piece. And like the picture becomes clear and almost like you can't unsee it anymore. Um, Scripture is a bit like that. And that's the reason why in Luke 24, he rebukes them. He's like, Why are you so slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken? And he's saying this, hey, look, since Moses, to all the prophets, everything is about me. He's saying that, I mean, these people are not illiterate of scripture. They memorized it since they were kids. They understood it. They knew the content. They had all the pieces in the pocket. But they needed Jesus to piece it together to them to see the real picture. I'm going to give you one example the Old Testament acquaints us with this idea that judgment befalls evil Like if you're evil or a bad person judgment will come and if you're righteous blessing will chase after you right so you just think from this grid if Jesus is the Messiah surely he must be blessed by God That looks like raining certainly doesn't look like being nailed on a tree Right, There is strong scriptural basis for this. Look at Deuteronomy 21. In the Mosaic Law, it says that if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death, you, and you hang him on a tree, his body must not remain there all night on that tree. You must bury him on the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. It goes on to actually say that that hanging on a tree, um, that body there, actually defiles the land that the Lord is giving them for an inheritance. Now, it's so how do you piece together? huh? You know, you Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross, right? Deuteronomy says such a man is cursed by God. It's kind of a mystery, right? Until Paul comes and he puts the pieces together for us in Galatians 3, and he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by indeed becoming cursed for us. And then he quotes Deuteronomy, he says, for it's written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on the tree. And then when we have that lens of what Paul describes in Galatians 3, we go back to Isaiah 53 and suddenly it makes sense. Isaiah writes about Messiah who bore our griefs, carried our sorrows but yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, we looked at him and said, hey, you must be evil because judgment is befalling you. But no, Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And it's the thing about God is that God often works in very surprising ways, paradoxical ways, sometimes even offensive to our human understanding. One of the things that I've learned across the years is that we should really expect the unexpected. Um, God doesn't want us to know everything and He hasn't revealed everything to us. But He's committed to us growing in the knowledge of His Son and that's the end goal. He wants us to keep growing in understanding and revelation of who Jesus is. So, Back to the start, all the way to the story of Joseph and uh, seven years of harvest, seven years of famine. I think that what we're called to do is to gather the pieces, just as Joseph gathered grain in the time of the harvest. Now, don't be discouraged when you're gathering the grain. You're like, oh, I don't know what's this for. You know, what I means like no one's really hungry for this. Why am I gathering all this grain, just putting it in the storehouse? I think we're called to gather and engage with all of these scriptures in the time of harvest. Now, don't be discouraged when you don't understand them initially. Continue to collect them. Continue to memorize them, to ponder, to reflect upon them. Have conversations with God, conversations with each other about these scriptures. God will make the connections as time goes by. I believe it. And one day, if we do have all the pieces, it will just click one day. So just gonna end off with this. Um, it's a call um, to two people, two groups of people. Well the first group of people have been somewhat disillusioned by this subject. Maybe you once interested in this at some point, but kind of like received teaching that didn't really help you grow in your walk and kind of was distracted. I just want to say and encourage you that the subject of the end times and the beauty of Jesus in this is your inheritance. And I just pray that God will give us the grace in this area to engage with this and discover Him afresh. The second group, Um, I feel that some of us feel the tension of doing the works of Jesus in our generation, a core part of who this church is, versus longing for the return of Jesus. And I think we understand that this is not a dichotomy, but we sometimes feel this tension, right? Longing for the end times and the return of Jesus versus like, how do you be a witness of him in our generation? I just pray that we'll start a conversation on this that um, the Lord has reviewed different aspects and highlighted different things in various people in our community. that we all just start a conversation and go on a journey to spur each other on. And it's not one or the other, but it's both and, and it must be. But together as a family, that we'll start to ask the question to God, how can we live, not just now, but in the future, to prepare the earth for your return? Yeah, so i come to the end I'll just pray Oh Father I thank you for um, anointing um, your church with understanding of who you are we thank you that you're increasing um, understanding of your son I just pray that um, for some of us who might have been um, disillusioned on this topic that Holy Spirit you would breathe fresh grace upon this subject that you would refresh us that um, that Um, Past experience will not rob us of the inheritance um, of the mysteries and revelations of who you are. I pray that for the maturing of your bride, you love to do that and you're so committed to doing that and you will do that. So I just pray that you continue to mature your bride, to long for you, to do the works of you in our generation and to become like you as we approach the day of your return. Yeah, we all saw this in Jesus' name. Amen.